0: Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son. Thank you for your great love. Thank you that you would love us, even though we are completely unlovable, that you would look down at us even in our sinfulness and you would love us enough to want to provide a way to make a way of rescue for us to be rescued from an eternity spent separated from you because we were hopeless without you. Thank you that you saw that need. You loved us in that time of need and you made a way, a way that's simple enough that everybody can get in on it, that even children should be able to understand it, a way that involved us giving up on ourselves and our human effort and any other thing that we could be putting our faith in and just putting our confidence completely in your provision through the work of your son as he died, was buried and rose again in our place and he paid the debt that we could never pay so that if we would accept his gift of substituting himself on our behalf through faith in his finished work, we could be born into your family and you promise that you'll never let us go. You give us your spirit to live inside of us as a down payment on that future inheritance where we'll one day go to be with you, and you give us the opportunity to live the rest of this life with you, knowing that we have an eternity to look forward to, to spend with you in the home that you've gone to prepare for us. Pray that those could be the things that are on our mind each and every day, that we wouldn't ever get tired of hearing the story of Jesus and his love, that we would want to live in light of that, And we would want to let you be a reflection of, let ourselves be a reflection of that love as we live amongst other people, that your light and your love could shine and work through us so that we would be a reflection of you, so that people could see you in us, they would hear you as we speak, that we could be lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, that we could be lights in the darkness to illuminate that with your truth. Pray that we would have a willingness to let you speak through us, to shine your light through us, that we wouldn't hide That hope that we have under a bushel basket, but that we would let it freely shine so others could come to know you too. Pray that we would go through life with our eyes fixed on you, knowing that apart from you working in and through us, we'll be able to do nothing that would bring you glory. But that at the same time, if we'll allow your spirit to have free reign in our lives, you say that there's nothing that is impossible with you. And you promise that you'll work in our lives to produce your kind of living and your kind of fruit through us when we allow your spirit to lead instead of leaning on our own understanding. Thank you that we have this opportunity to gather for a midweek devotional, a midweek reminder of what your word has to say, some encouragement, some nourishment from your word. Thank you that we can do that collectively here as a part of a local church. Thank you for this building. Thank you for all of the hard work that goes into keeping it running and maintaining it. Pray that you just even encourage and strengthen and uplift those that are involved in some of those efforts. Pray that we would have hearts, hearts that want to live life close to you, that we wouldn't withdraw from you, that we would draw nearer to you, that we would want to spend every moment in your presence, and that we wouldn't want to live life on our own. Thank you again for this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for those of you who were here last Wednesday, you know that we've been working through a little mini-series, if you will, on a closing passage from the book of 1 Thessalonians. And the title that we've been working under for this mini-series is We Exhort You, as Paul and his colleagues that he is traveling with, are effectively communicating or addressing this group of believers in Thessalonica. And as Paul finishes this first letter that he wrote to Thessalonica, he has this parting list of exhortations or instructions that he wants to communicate to the believers that he is speaking with there in Thessalonica. Now he's doing it in the form of a letter, so he says, we exhort you. Now this is again our third lesson, so for those of you who have been here for the first two parts of it, you've already heard me explain that this word exhort, it means to encourage to implore, to entreat, to urge or to request earnestly. But it captures this idea of having this more emotional entreaty or begging even. The word in Greek is often translated with the word in English, beg. So we beg you or we are pleading earnestly or requesting earnestly with you and then that you would heed a series of instructions. Now we also talked about this idea that you have this sense of something being communicated passionately with this desperate desire that the ones that are hearing this would respond to those instructions favorably that are given. And why? Because we talk about this idea of Paul writing this from a perspective of love. His exhortations, which are ultimately God speaking through him to believers, are written from a perspective or from a place of this deep-seated concern, compassion, and love for God the audience that he's writing to. So he's not writing to strangers. He's writing to people that he has a deep concern for, a deep passion for their well-being. Now, as an apostle, his primary concern is for their spiritual well-being. Now, obviously, he's also concerned with their physical, financial, emotional well-being, some of these other aspects of life. But his primary focus in speaking to them and, and seeking to teach them is on their spiritual well-being. So he's communicating a number of exhortations or instructions passionately with the desire that they would benefit from them, from heeding them in a spiritual sense. And so that's how he chooses to end this book of 1 Thessalonians. Now, we just came ac- I came across this in my own devotions and was looking for a little bit of a segue from our study that we were doing on Deuteronomy into our next series, which I'm not even 100% sure what that will be, but I was just struck by this list of how many different things Paul wanted to sort of throw out as sort of a laundry list of instructions that would benefit these believers spiritually as he was ending this letter. And so there was 15 of them. They're communicated again from a place of love and concern. They're intended to benefit the audience that is hearing them. There's 15 of them given in this section between verses 14 and verse verse 25 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So, so far we've looked at eight of them. And we're going to try to Lord willing cover a few more here tonight and potentially finish up next Wednesday or i guess next Wednesday is no it'll be next Wednesday lord willing so if you haven't already turn to 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 now if you're unfamiliar with the new testament that's one of the smaller Books of the New Testament, but we have the Gospels, then Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians is where we're at. So you're getting into one of these letters that Paul's written. We're in the fifth chapter, but let's just read this section together so that we see some of the ones that we've already touched on and we see what's a, sort of a preview of what's coming next. But we'll pick up in verse 14. Now we exhort you, we beg you. We have this, we're pleading with you earnestly. Brethren, so we have to have some context. We have to know this is written to believers. And as we have mentioned in the past, he's writing to brethren, but he's writing to you. As a believer in the church age, you are the audience that the Spirit of God is communicating to through the Apostle Paul. There's got to be a personal receipt of this even on our level here tonight. So we exhort you, brethren, Brothers and sisters in Christ. Now he starts the list. Warn those who are unruly. There's a place to come alongside of people and to encourage them to operate in a fashion that is helpful and brings people together. Comfort the faint-hearted. Is that something that's necessary in a body of believers, in a group of believers that know each other? Are there those that at times are faint-hearted? Yes, uphold the weak. This pick them up, support them, come alongside of them. Be patient with all. I thought that one was very good when we covered that. Just this idea that we all need a healthy dose of patience. And maybe it's just me that that really is applying to, but certain people are, I guess, a little bit more impatient than others, but we all need to be reminded of this. Be patient with all. Then verse 15, see that no one renders evil for evil, to anyone. Never respond to evil with more evil. But always, not sometimes, always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Meaning we don't go through life with blinders on where we're just focused on our own affairs and what's best for us. Now communicating this to a local church, to a group of believers, there's this sense of let every man look not only for his own Look not only on his own affairs, but also on the needs and the affairs of others. There's that truth communicated over and over by Paul as he writes these church age epistles to local churches scattered throughout the world. So what is good for both for yourself and for all? Then rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast, you could say, to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This will be to your benefit. We'll get to that when we get there. There's a great benefit in heeding these instructions. Verse 24, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. And then we're ending with brethren, pray for us, which is the last imperative in that list. 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss is not an an imperative, Um, but we could have finished off the chapter, but we're just going to go through verse 25. All right, well, with that said, there was some instructions or some understanding of what these instructions are or what an imperative is. So these instructions or exhortations. We observe they're, they're spoken or communicated in the imperative mood in Greek. So they have this sense of this information that I'm instructing you in is imperative or it's critical. That's the best way of looking at it. It's critical to the desired outcome being achieved. Now in Paul's case the desired outcome is that they would thrive spiritually. So these instructions are given to you with an expectation that you would see that heeding these instructions is critical to the desired outcome or your thriving in your spiritual walk with the Lord. So there's that aspect to it. And in a sense, Paul is communicating to people he expects or has come to know they have a respect for his teaching or what he has to say to them. So in a sense, there's an expectation that if if I'm on your side and I'm trying to help you, and I communicate some truth to you that's intended to benefit you, and I know that you trust that I'm wanting what's best for you, then it would stand to reason that there would also be some underlying expectation that you would heed these instructions that are being communicated. And God, when he gives us instructions, he's giving them to us with our best interest in mind. So that was the other thing that we observed so that we had that framework as we work through these imperatives or these exhortations that they're intended to benefit you and the reason we know that is because God is always on your side if God is always for you he's never against you if God wants what's best for you if God is seeking always to lovingly bring you along in your spiritual walk and in your spiritual growth then he always gives instructions in a way that is parental it's, it's loving it's intended to improve or benefit you and so as we see him that way, we ought not to have this bristling kind of a sense of don't tell me what to do. And naturally, when we get instructions or we're told to do something or we're, we're advised to do something, if we're not careful, our flesh naturally has this resistance that says it's a rebellious streak, but it's really an independent streak where we say, I'm my own man. I can figure this out for myself. I don't need to be told what to do. I don't need a show of hands as to how many of you that is your own sort of natural tendency when you are faced with some instruction or some advice that is being given to you to say, no, I want to do this my way. But oftentimes, you've probably worked with people like that where you're seeking as somebody who has more experience than they do to give them some guidance that will benefit them, will allow them to accomplish the task in a more favorable or more efficient way. You ever worked with somebody like that? You ever had a child that you're trying to give some direction to like that? And the natural fleshly response, by default, is to say, no, I'm going to do it my way. And the problem with that is that very often, your way, not very often, almost always, your way is not best Because in a spiritual context, God always knows best. But even in those examples that I'm talking about, you watch them then struggle to continue doing the same thing they were trying to do. It was ineffective to begin with. It continues to be ineffective. And you watch them struggle even though you've told them, you could do this far better or more easily if you would just listen to me. Stop trying to do that first. You're doing it out of order. You're not holding the nail correctly. You're not holding the screw gun correctly. You're not holding the guitar or the piano or whatever you're trying to instruct in. You're not doing it right. And because you're doing it incorrectly, will you eventually maybe be able to have some kind of a hob together outcome that to you seems acceptable? Yes, but will it be as good as it could have been if you would have heeded the advice of somebody who knew more than you did? And of course, we know the answers to those questions. So that's what we need to have in the back of of our minds as we see God communicate his instructions to us in his word. So we worked through warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all in verse 14. Then in verse 15 we look through see that no one renders evil for evil and pursue what is good. In verse 16 we looked at rejoice always, pray without ceasing in verse 17, and we're going to pick up tonight with in everything Give thanks in verse 18. So, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So let's dive in again right there. Now, give thanks. So give thanks in everything is probably a better way to even read that sentence in the sense that the emphasis or the primary thought is found in Give thanks. That's the focus. You give thanks. So there's an assumed you as the subject. And then we have give thanks. That's the, that's the focal point of the verse or the instruction or that clause. And then in everything modifies that. So what you're really saying is give thanks. You give thanks. That's the instruction. You give thanks. And then to modify that or expand on that, he's going to say give thanks. You give thanks in everything. And then he's going to explain, this is God's will for you. And so, it's not overly complicated, but there's quite a few things that we could look at here, and we will look at, as it relates to this primary thought of give thanks. It refers primarily to an attitude of gratitude. When we're thinking of even this word, give thanks, what are we talking about? We're talking about having this attitude of gratitude, or you could rephrase this, you could say, be grateful in everything that's the closest word that really brings out this idea of thanks or thanksgiving so be grateful in everything be grateful but as it if you look at the context here you see that it's closely related to prayer so we have pray without ceasing and it's all part of one sentence verse 16 through 18 is all one sentence in the original language. So you have rejoice always, comma, pray without ceasing, comma. Now on the heels of pray without ceasing, we have in everything give thanks before our semicolon there. So I don't want to make this overly technical. There's no reason for it. But this in some ways is a continuation of that thought. We have In our prayer life, we have this sense of rejoicing. In our prayer life, we have this sense of never stopping to pray or never ceasing our prayers because there's always something to be rejoicing about. Or if you see that prayer is not some kind of a mechanical process that we go through where prayer is something that we only do in certain places, in certain postures, at certain times. And so for so many, they grow up even in Christian faith, or what you could put under an umbrella, a very generic umbrella of Christian faith, they grow up believing that prayer is something that is a religious ritual. It's something that we do in a very symbolic and, again, mechanical type of a way where we only do it in certain places. And, again, it might be the type of thing where you grow up, you pray on, on your knees. Some people, they pray always with their hands folded. Now, we try to teach children, as I've said in the past, to pray with their hands folded, not because there's anything holy about praying with your hands folded, but because it's one of the best ways to keep them from pinching their brother while you're trying to pray as a family. So if we can get those hands kind of locked together, it helps them to focus and concentrate on what we're trying to do. But prayer is simply a fancy word for talking to God, communicating to God. We can do that verbally, but we can do that mentally too as we just... Direct our thoughts to the Lord. Communicate, have this sense of this symbiotic personal closeness, this intimacy of fellowship with God, where we're communicating to Him. We're we're giving or directing our thoughts, inclining our eyes and our hearts to Him. Now sometimes that is, we verbalize that externally, meaning we have audible prayers. But we can do that with two hands on a steering wheel. We can do that while jogging down the road. We can do that while lying in our beds. We could make a Dr. Seuss book out of this in terms of we can pray while we're standing, while we're sitting, while we're lying down, while we're driving, while we're jumping in a tree or riding on a bike, or you can see how that could turn into a very rhymey kind of a thing maybe. But the point is that prayer isn't that kind of a mechanical thing. Prayer is this thing that where I have a thought that I want to direct to God and I effectively mentally I'm saying God and then I tell him something. I communicate something to him. So when you're thinking of prayer in that way, now we're not making it so mechanical. We're looking at it in a a construct, in a content of, it's just a part of our everyday living. It's a part of our living life with God. So you talk about, how do I live life with God? Well, I do it by having a friendship with God. If I have a friendship with God and he's my very best friend and he's my closest, he's closer to me than any other, then I would naturally have the type of a relationship with him that would be very communicative. And so we have this sense of rejoicing in our prayers and praying without ceasing, meaning that as we go about life, we're continuously involving God in our thoughts. That's the equivalent of continuously praying as we talk to him about people we thank him for things we praise him for things and as we see and observe the world around us and we interact with those things they should cause us to want to include him in that and as we're doing that that's sort of the idea of praying without ceasing now in everything give thanks is sort of a continuation of that so there's this close association there as that type of mindset should be accompanying your communication with God so your interactions with God should be Described by or accompanied by this think, this sense of gratefulness, this attitude of gratitude, this sense of as I communicate and live life with God, I have this expression of gratefulness in those interactions. And so we can see that, that association with prayer. If we want to look at another passage for that, let's turn to Philippians. So a few pages to your left, if you come to the book of Philippians, we'll look at chapter four, verse six. And we'll see that this gratefulness, this in everything be grateful or thankful, that that is almost inseparable from this idea of communicating with God through prayer. It's this spirit or this attitude, it's a mindset that we're really talking about. And if our mindset is including him, then it's a part of that interaction with him. But Philippians 4.6 says, in everything... In prayer and supplication, now what is to accompany prayer and supplication is another type of prayer. But what is to accompany that? In everything, with thanksgiving. So our prayers and supplications are to include thanksgiving. What's our word for thanksgiving? Gratitude, gratefulness. Let your requests be made known to God. So as I pray to God, it's with a spirit, or it includes this heart of thankfulness or gratitude as I communicate my requests to a personal God who loves me intensely and wants to live life with me. Now is that a little bit different than a cold and detached kind of Christian experience that most people, or many people anyway, grow up with? This idea that God is only in a certain building and he can only be accessed through certain rituals. And he's, I find him in these certain boxes in my life, but he's not everywhere else. I don't get to interact with him everywhere else. He's not really that personal to me. He's just a God that I think about as distant and far away. That's not the kind of God we have. We have a personal God who wants to live life with us personally, and that is found in this attitude of gratitude that accompanies our prayers. So when you think about giving thanks in everything, and if you think about this idea that it's closely connected to praying, I hope if you track this logic you'll you'll think just the concept that the God of the universe would hear my prayers that that he would want to hear from me that he would even notice me that he would love me that he would want to live life with me. Shouldn't that idea that I can access God any anytime that I want through prayer. I can speak to him any time that I want. Shouldn't that just absolutely blow me away and overwhelm me with a sense of gratitude? Just that I have access to the God of the universe. So if you're connecting these two thoughts and we're praying without ceasing, but in everything we're giving thanks and it's connected to that idea of living life with him, that's where Paul is, what he's really trying to get at here. Is that just that very access to God would give me this sense of gratefulness. Such that I would be so grateful just for the position that I have in God's family and my access to Him relationally, that I can live life with Him, that no matter else, no matter what else was happening, no matter what my trials or circumstances might be, I would still could have, in that, I could have this heart that's overwhelmed with gratitude to God, even though not everything that's going on around me is pleasant, not everything is is good, not everything is lovely, but yet this access to God and as he's with me he says I'll never leave you or forsake you and as I'm able to communicate to him personally and go through that trial with him I can still have this spirit of He says I can work them together for your good if you'll trust me in those things. So God can use them for your good. And most of you know this passage, so we're not going to turn there, but Romans eight twenty eight is God's promise about that. He says, and we know, Paul's speaking here in Romans, and he's saying, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God works things together for good. But note that he doesn't say that all things are good. So to thank God or have this attitude of gratitude in everything is to see God working in every situation to bring about some spiritual benefit in your life. That's how. When you say, how is this possible? That's how. As I see that God in everything can work things together to bring me closer to him, I can rejoice or have a spirit of gratefulness In that, because I'm watching what God is doing in those situations as he's using them to remind me, child, get your eyes off of yourself. Child, get your eyes off of your circumstances. Son, get your eyes off of the storm that's raging around you and get your eyes on me. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. That's where spiritual success can be found. It can't be found with fixating on ourselves or our circumstances. So like I said, it's not to say that God causes suffering and affliction, but it's to acknowledge that God works for the good of every believer through every situation. Genesis fifty twenty is a passage where Joseph is talking to his brothers who are scared to death that now that the father has passed away, that Joseph might now finally exact his revenge on his brothers who took him and sold him into slavery, told their father that he was killed by a wild animal, They mistreated and abused him in ways most people haven't gone through. Where he was abandoned and neglected and ultimately traded for money by his own family. And there are people in our country going through that right now. It's not the norm, but that happens even in our day. Where people sell off their own kids. Sell off their own relatives. It's a real problem. So you can imagine how difficult a trial that might be. But Joseph now knows nobody. He's now a slave, and he's now in a foreign land with a foreign language, with foreign customs, and he's a teenager. Well, after some point, period of time, you know that he is reunited with his family, that he expresses a heart of forgiveness he actually provides a way for them all to live with him in this new country where God took him from being a slave and made him the highest ranking person in the whole country underneath Pharaoh himself. So God worked in his life. He worked things together for his good and he gave Joseph the ability to forgive. But the brothers wondered, is this real genuine forgiveness? Or as soon as dad is gone, is he gonna exact his revenge finally on us? So they had that worry. That's the context of Genesis fifty twenty. And so Genesis fifty twenty says, but as for you, he's speaking to his brothers, he says, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. In order to bring it about as of today to save many people alive, Joseph has the perspective that although their motives were evil, and they meant what they did to him for evil because they were jealous of him, that God had used that in his life, for his benefit, and ultimately for the benefit of many others who would have starved to death if it were not for that set of circumstances that set Joseph up in a place where he could save the lives of many, many people from famine because of the position of power and influence that God brought him into in Egypt through or despite, I would say, these acts of human beings that were evil in their motives. So the Christian can give thanks to God at all times regardless of their circumstances. So give thanks In everything. And Paul realized that this mindset or attitude was needed. He realized it was needed in his own life. He led by example in that sense. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and we'll see Paul express this same perspective. That his attitude of gratitude would accompany his prayers to God, to God and that it would be all of the time. Not just some of the time. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2 says, We give thanks to God always, how often? Always, for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. So you see that connection there again between prayers and then the attitude that's supposed to be behind those prayers, the sense of gratefulness to God for all that he's done. And how often is that spirit of gratitude supposed to accompany your prayers? Always. How often are you to be praying? Always. So how often are you supposed to be thinking that way? All of the time. Are you feeling that way right now? Are you sitting there in your chair tonight saying, man, am I grateful to God for all that he's done in my life, for all that he continues to do in my life, what, with thankful for all that he's promised to do in my life in the future. Man, am I grateful to God. And the answer is oftentimes no, that's not how you're feeling. But what's the solution to that? To come out even on a night like this and be reminded of just how much God has done for you what he continues to do for you in your everyday life and what he's promised your future looks like and why that can be cause for celebration, cause for gratitude, even in the face of very difficult things. Now, what is the opposite of thankfulness? So if we're supposed to have this attitude of gratefulness or this attitude of thankfulness, the opposite, of course, is being ungrateful. Have you ever said that to your child? You're so ungrateful as no matter how much you give them, or provide for them, it's never enough at times. They're always looking for a little bit more, the next thing, and they learn that from you. Where do they learn that from? The one that can never be satisfied. It's never good enough. Unfortunately, when we're not looking to the Lord, they learn that from their closest human interactions, which oftentimes are with you, their parents. And so that's not cause for shame or guilt, remorse. It's cause for saying, Lord, work on my heart so that I'm a better expression of you, so that I can reflect your values, so that they can see how thankful I am, how content I am with your provision for my life, so that they wouldn't have that attitude. They wouldn't develop that attitude in their own lives where it's never good enough and there's always gotta be the next best thing. But that's what comes naturally naturally. So if Paul is having to exhort or beg them to give thanks and everything, why would he have to do that? Because our natural tendency is to be ungrateful. And that ungratefulness in our lives when it creeps in, that lack of gratitude, that lack of contentment, that is an ungodly mindset. It's never the Spirit of God producing that mindset in you when you're not grateful or thankful, when you're not content. God's spirit is not giving you that mindset. That is an ungodly mindset and attitude. And we see that in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Paul says that very directly. He says, because although they knew God, he's talking about those who have not accepted Jesus Christ, they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their, fu- their foolish hearts were darkened. See, they weren't thankful. That's the natural man's way of thinking or operating. That's the natural attitude is to not be grateful. So that's the thing that's being warned against. Paul's saying don't do that. He's saying in everything, be thankful or be grateful. See, God wants to produce a different perspective or mindset in you. And the question could be, are you sure about that? Are you sure that God wants me to have a different way of thinking? Yes, because this exhortation is give thanks in everything, and then if you're still not sure what the source of that exhortation is, then you read on and it says, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the will of God. Not this might be God's will for you. This is the will of God for you. And so will refers to, of course, God's desire for you. And this phrase actually modifies all three clauses in this sentence. And so our sentence again begins with verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. And then we have our semicolon there. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That actually modifies all three of those things. But we bring it out especially here in everything give thanks. That's God's will for your life. Now remember, if that came naturally, then he wouldn't have to be saying this. And if it doesn't come naturally, then it's going to take supernatural involvement for you to ever have that characterize your life. These attitudes, these things. For these things, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. For those things... To characterize your life, it's going to have to be the product of supernatural involvement because we just observed that none of those things come naturally. It's only God's Spirit working in and through you that can make those things true in your life. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have to give these exhortations if this is already automatically what the default would be. So always remember that. These things are a byproduct of fellowship, These are a byproduct of keeping our focus on Jesus Christ. When our focus is on Jesus Christ, then his spirit is free to work in and through us. His spirit is free to lead us. His spirit is free to produce that manner of living in our lives as we enjoy that intimate, day-to-day, moment-by-moment, relational life with God. And as we involve him in our thinking and our thoughts are directed on him and his word is permeating through our mind and it's coming in our ears and staying there and bouncing around in our thinking and his word is what's directing our viewpoint and his spirit is then free to work in our lives, these things automatically become true because they're supernaturally produced in our lives. So I don't want you to leave here tonight thinking, I need to make myself thankful in everything. Forget about it. That'll never happen. that isn't what comes by de- default it's going to take god producing in you that kind of mindset as you keep your eyes focused on him and i hope you see that with all of these exhortations i i won't necessarily say it in every one of these messages but you can't make this true of yourself god has to make these things true in your life as you get your eyes focused on him now is this important to have an attitude of gratitude. Is it important to your spiritual success? Well, it's repeated over and over and over in scriptures. I want you to turn to Colossians. Again, a few pages to your left. We're going to start in two We're going to look at three different passages here in Colossians that all emphasize this. There's plenty of places in the Old Testament we could have gone to, but I wanted to stay close to where we are right now. Colossians 2.7 says this, Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as you have been taught, so this is his prayer for these believers, that they would be rooted and built up in him, him being a reference to God or Christ, and established in the faith, another request, as you have been taught, now abounding in it with thanksgiving. That's supposed to be your perspective. It is important. Turn to chapter 3, Verse 15. Remember, the Bible is a book of repetition. Why? Because we have thick skulls. We don't get it the first time. We have to be reminded of things over and over again. 315, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Jump to verse 17, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is supposed to have be the type of attitude or mindset that's a part of your everyday thinking or your everyday life. Go to chapter four verse two. four two says continue earnestly in prayer, be vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Again this attitude of gratitude that accompanies our prayers, there's that connection there again to prayer. Ephesians 5.20, I'll just read to you, but it says, giving thanks always for all things. To God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Almost an identical exhortation. Give thanks always for all things. Very similar to what we're seeing here about in all things or in everything being thanks or giving thanks. So let's move on to verse 19. What's the next exhortation? Do not quench the Spirit. So turn back to 1 Thessalonians 5 there. You see verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. Now one of the figures or pictures or illustration that's used for the Holy Spirit in the Bible is fire. You can see that in Matthew 3.11. It says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. Repentance metanoia is a Greek word meaning to change your mind. The purpose is always to change your mind. God's objective is always to get you to change your mind. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He, a reference to Jesus Christ, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. So there's this connection to the symbolism of fire with the Holy Spirit. That's also true in Acts chapter two, verses one through four, this reference to, or this it's a record of, an account of, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon those early church age believers, and they were indwelt for the first time with God's very spirit. And it talks about, then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and sat upon each of them. There's this connection to this theme, though, of fire and the Holy Spirit being symbolized by that. So do not quench the spirit. That's why this symbolism is being used by Paul, this idea that you could quench the spirit and the fire of the spirit is the idea there so how do you quench a fire if this is a it's referring to or that symbolism of a fire being put out that is being used here how do you quench a fire well you dampen it down you don't let it burn that's how you quench it quench focuses on extinguishing or stifling something like a burning fire the primary focus here is on hindering or limiting a flame's full potential. So do not limit the potential or the working that the Spirit of God wants to do in you. That's the general idea. So how do you quench the Spirit? How do you do that? How do you limit the full potential of the Spirit? Can you do that, first of all? answer is, of course you can. Or why would Paul be saying to these believers, do not quench the Spirit? Well, how do you quench the Spirit? You refuse to let the Holy Spirit guide, and power and work through you. You refuse to allow that to happen the way that God wants to have his Spirit directing and guiding and empowering and working through you. That's the same thing that Paul is teaching to the Ephesian believers in Ephesians chapter 4. So because we're pretty close, turn to Ephesians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So a little bit to your left. Ephesians chapter 4. And you'll see a very similar thought that Paul is communicating. It says this. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So you can quench the Holy Spirit and you can grieve the Holy Spirit. The idea is that you're not allowing the spirit to accomplish his work in you. You're not allowing it to operate to the fullest extent possible or the desired the desired extent possible. And he's talking about these alternatives to a spirit-led, spirit-directed, spirit-empowered life. He's saying, let, verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Would that be spirit-produced? No, the alternative Instead, if the Spirit is leading is but what is good for necessary edification? That's what should be coming out of your mouth. Verse 31, some more descriptions of what happens when we're grieving the Spirit. We're not allowing the Spirit to have His way in our lives. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Those things wouldn't be true in your life if the Spirit was directing in that moment. But what would be true instead, verse 32, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ's sake, as God in Christ forgave you. And the King James says, as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. That would be what was produced in you. Why? Because the Spirit of God, it's God's Spirit. So if God's Spirit is directing in your life, then God would be producing in your life a manner of living that's consistent with God's character. So when we're grieving or quenching the Spirit, we're not allowing the Spirit to have his way fully in our lives or direct in our lives the way that God wants. So the Spirit is grieved by this unwillingness to let him direct in your life. Now, if you're instructed again to avoid doing this, it must be a real danger. See, God's Spirit inside of you is at risk of being hindered. That's sort of the idea of quenching, hindering God's Spirit. Paul is warning against allowing this to presently be occurring in your life. Like a fire is not to be quenched, so the Spirit is not to be prevented from doing His work effectively or to the maximum possible extent in your life. The Holy Spirit wants to, direct in your life. And what are some of the ways that the Holy Spirit works in your life? The Holy Spirit wants to empower you, direct you, illuminate you, fill you, teach you, produce fruit in your life and more. The Holy Spirit wants to utilize the spiritual gifts that God has given you. Every believer has been given spiritual gifts. When you're quenching the Spirit then the Spirit of God isn't able to utilize those giftedness for the, that giftedness for the benefit of others the way it was intended to be used for the benefit of others to the maximum extent possible. Why? Because you're keeping the flame from becoming as bright and as effective as possible. It's like having a fire that you're trying to fan into a brighter flame and at the same time you're taking the hose and you're spraying water on it. It's not going to work. But when you fan that flame with the truth from God's word, when you fan that flame with fuel coming in the form of fellowship with other believers, when you fan that flame by having this intimate, personal, daily fellowship with God, then God's spirit is, instead of being quenched, it's being fueled in a sense. Not, Not that you can enhance God's power but it's being allowed to have its full reign in your life and God can do amazing things when we allow that to be true in our lives instead of continuously robbing that fire of fuel robbing that fire of oxygen covering it up so it can't be seen that doesn't that doesn't lead to the spirit being able to maximize its mission within you now I want to touch on this as we end God doesn't force you to appropriate the resources he makes available. God doesn't make you walk by means of his spirit. So walk by means of the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So walk by means of the spirit and you will not quench the spirit. You will not grieve the spirit. When you're walking in dependence on the spirit of God to work in your life. in your life. But God doesn't make you do that. God doesn't insist that you live like you're alive either. He says, you are alive positionally. I've taken what was dead and I've made it alive positionally. The moment you put your faith in the finished work of my son, when you put your trust in the finished work of my son on Calvary, that moment you were made alive. What was dead has now translated from this realm of death in this association with this estrangement from God in the family of Adam, in association with that family, into now this new life that can be found in Christ. As you positionally move from that realm of being separated from God in the in Adam to now being identified with God in Christ because of your faith in the finished work of Christ on your behalf as he died, was buried and rose again for you. As he died in your place to pay the sin debt penalty that you could never pay. And so as that debt that you had, that you owed but could never pay, was satisfied by the substitutionary death of Jesus as he died in your place, and he paid that debt for you, The moment you put your faith in that, that payment was allocated to your account. It was appropriated by faith. It was credited to your account in a sense. Your account was now in good standing with God. And now a holy God could have a close intimate relationship with you on the basis of the payment of another on your behalf. Not on the basis of anything you had done. But on the basis of what he had done for you and how you had accepted that gift by faith alone in him alone. And as you put your faith in his finished work on your behalf, he said, you're now... My child, that moment you have a new spiritual birth and you're born again, you're born into my family, and he says, I'll never let you go. And as God does that for us, he says, I want to now give you access, not just positionally to this newfound life in Christ, but I want you to be able to really live life in a practical day-to-day way. But you're gonna live life the same way you got to be in my family to begin with, by depending on me to do for you what you could never do for yourself. By abiding in the vine." Allowing me to work through you instead of trying to do this yourself. And as you have that posture of dependence on him to work in and through you, the same way you had to have that posture of dependence for him to provide a way of salvation for you that you never could have provided for yourself, God continues to make you alive in a sense practically as you appropriate that new life that's available. And as you tap into that life that's available by allowing God's spirit to work in your life, now you're really living. Because now you're not trying to do it yourself, but you're allowing the Spirit of God to work in and through you. And as that fills you and empowers you to live life in a way that would bring God glory, now your life has meaning. It has purpose. You can have contentment because you see this is the best life possible. This is really living. But God doesn't make you do that. He says, even though you're positionally in my family, even though you've now been blessed with all of these blessings associated with this new royal inheritance that you have is now being a son of the king, even though that's your position as a prince of heaven or princess of heaven, if you want to keep living like you're a pauper who has nothing, if you want to keep living like you're lost or, or like you're dead even though I've made you alive, you can do that. It's inauthentic. It's a farce because you've been made alive positionally in me. You're my child. Why would a child of royalty live like there? Still a slave to sin. If they've been freed from the slave market of sin by faith in the finished work of Christ and those bonds have been broken, why would one continue to live like they're a slave if they could live like royalty? The question is the reason is because if we're not trusting God and we're leaning on our own understanding, then we always go back to what comes naturally. Even though positionally we have this royal inheritance in Christ that will never fade away, it'll never be corrupted, it'll never be defiled. It can never be lost, but unfortunately it can be squandered in this life. So God doesn't make us give thanks in everything. God doesn't make us not quench the Holy Spirit. He says that life is available, and the Spirit-led, Spirit-directed life, that's the only kind of life that's really living, but he doesn't make us do that. You have to choose that. So turn for our last passage, turn to Romans chapter 8, and I want to See, I want you to see that communicated very clearly here. Romans chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verse 11 as we wrap up tonight. This is a choice. It says this. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He's saying, if it does, and it does. So it's not, he's saying, he's not saying that that might or might not be true. He's saying it is, it is true. So if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and it does, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So what's the source of life? His spirit who dwells in you. The Spirit's the only one who can produce real life in you. Verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Verse 13. But if by the Spirit, meaning if you're living by means of the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. Now who puts it to death? The Spirit puts it to death. You're living by means of the Spirit. That allows you to put to death the deeds of the body. What happens as a result? You will live. So there's two choices available for the Christian. This is written to believers. Therefore, brethren, you see that in verse 12. Believers, it's not if you have the spirit dwelling in you, you do. But the question is, are you going to experience the life that is available to you? The only way you'll do that is to not live according to the flesh but instead to live according to or by means of is a better way of understanding that, the spirit of God. Now, are you going to be living by means of the spirit of God while at the same time you're grieving the spirit of God, quenching the spirit of God? To live by means of the spirit of God is to allow the spirit of God free reign and rule in your life. As you keep your eyes on the author and finisher of your faith, as you're looking to him, experiencing life with God, you're interacting with God, You're keeping your focus and your dependence on him. You're knowing that apart from him you can do nothing. But as you stay connected to him, as you draw nearer to him, as you seek after him in your mental desires to live life with him, then his spirit is free to produce this kind of life in you. But it's the only kind of real life, and there's a choice to be made. It's not forced on you. You have to choose that. So with all of these exhortations, we have these reminders that these things would be beneficial to you. They're communicated with the idea that they would benefit you. Do you you see that? Can you see that this is intended to be a good reminder for you so that you could thrive in your spiritual life? They're communicated with your well-being in mind. And the question is, will you take these exhortations to heart? Will you allow God to make the necessary changes and adjustments in your life so that these things could be true of you? But again, they'll only be true of you as you get your eyes off of your circumstances and yourself, get them onto your Savior. As we're looking at our Savior, then his Spirit can make these things true in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend together in your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for all of these needed and necessary reminders. Pray that we would not just let them come in one ear and out the other, but that we would allow you to use them in our lives to change our minds, to change our thinking, to get our focus back on you. In Jesus' name, amen.